Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jennifer White. I am here with Ellen Trackman, my amazing sister. Hey, Ellen. Oh, you're so nice. You say you're amazing sister. When I start, I don't always say that, or I don't. I, I need. I. Uh, it it I just makes me now. know how you feel, I feel about bad. me. Now I feel terrible. No, no I'm totally fine. I'm, gonna, I I'm, I'm going first next time, so I can say it. <laughs> um, Ellen, in honor of our guests that are coming in today, um, yeah. do you have a favorite art modality I guess is the way to say it uh art medium yes uh I do because I am very uncool right now at this point in my life where I don't make it out to see a lot of art in person but there is um I also like it's hard to read a book as well as many as often as I used to <laughs> But there is one modality that still works in my life, and that is podcasts. What? Um, I do love podcasts, mostly like walking the dog. I can catch up on the news. I can listen to stories. So I have lots of favorite podcasts. So, so this one. Um, how about you? I, I mean, I think I'm kind of in a similar boat that you know life gets busy. But I've always enjoyed when I've gone to like major museums. And yeah, I've, do you have a favorite? Um, I I will say, and I'm sorry if I people throw eggs at me for this, but the Louvre is overrated. Like, as in, it's like really hard to get around in, and like you can't see a whole lot. Mm. Um, I love that like a lot of the national museums in the UK are free, which means that you can just like dip in and out and not feel pressured to be like, oh my god, I must take in all of the art in this exact moment. You can like do it when you're actually in the mood for. So I think. Yeah. things like that like the victorian albert museum was probably one of my favorite when we lived in the uk um you know and per se like their national portrait gallery and things like that which are also amazing but i think the victorian albert in um in london is probably one of my favorites yeah so well speaking of art hold on yes. for this great let's interview have, let's, see, let's talk about our guests Welcome to the podcast. We're so fortunate today to have three guests talking about their collaboration on a book. We have Elizabeth Horn, Mariah, oh, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce everyone's name. I already apologize. Maria <laughs> Devondi, I heard everything down. I practiced. Okay, I can do this. Um, Robin Silverglide, was that right? Silverglide? Yeah. Close. Yes, Robin. Okay. So um, Elizabeth, Maria, and Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, first, I would love just an introduction to the book, and then we were thinking we would go into your, your backstories and what led to this. Who would like to start with that introduction? I can go ahead. Um, so this is Maria. Thank you so much for having us. Um, so this is really a book that's been in the making for, you know, about 10 years, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, and it really came out of work that Elizabeth Horn um, and myself had had started through our project, The Art of Infertility. So some of your listeners may know of that project. You can follow us at Art of IF on Instagram and um, on Facebook and things like that. Um, but that was a project that Elizabeth, and she can go and talk more about it, I'm sure, um, had started with her peer-led support group um and when she was creating pieces of art with them and then um through her own experiences elizabeth and i met 
around that same time, we were both in Michigan and um, decided that this was something that had some meaning behind it. People were intrigued by it. We were intrigued by it. We were at a moment in our infertility lives where we could devote some time and energy to it. Um, probably more than, than uh, was probably healthy at some moments, but we did. And um, fast forward, we know we have like over 200 pieces of art and um, tons and tons of oral histories that we've collected um, throughout our years. And it's really helped us, I think, just, you know, go through our own personal infertility journeys, but it's also been great to see how it's really helped amplify the conversations around access to care and um, how infertility impacts so many so many different types of people. Um, and so the book was really like an extension of, well, COVID hit and we can't do a lot of the public programming that we used to do um, by like going into different galleries and doing public exhibits. So it was really a moment for us to be like, you know what, let's get something that we can, you know, ship out to people that they can carry around in their backpacks that they can have at the clinic, um, something that really can be an accessible form of the work that we were doing. And so that's kind of how it came out is COVID happened and we need to do something else. And we were really fortunate enough to do it. Um, we've been working and collaborating with Robin Silverglide for the past couple of years anyways. Robin's a great creative writer and really brings that expertise to this. Um, and so the three of us decided to kind of sit down and do that. That's amazing. I, before we dive and talk about the actual content of the book and things like that, like I, I'd love to explore everybody's story because I mean, part of our podcast. I mean, I think we have a really lovely like coming together because one of the things, big things about our podcast is we don't want people to feel alone, and I think that that's one of the great things that your book does is it lets everybody know that they're not alone through a different medium. Um, but we always like to tell people their own story, uh, have people tell their own stories and what's brought them to this sphere. So. Um, since we already made you talk first, Maria, I don't know if you want to go first or if we want to let somebody else tell their story first. <laughs> I think I think actually Elizabeth should go because um, that's kind of like how we how we roll in this a little bit. So go ahead, Elizabeth. <laughs> we would love to hear your story as to your fertility story and kind of what has brought you to this sphere. I am happy to share. So this is Elizabeth Horn. I um, was diagnosed with infertility back in 2010 and. Uh, like many individuals who are dealing with infertility, it took a really long time for me to be able to verbalize it and talk to friends and family about it. Um, but I was really frustrated because during that same time, it was it was impacting me in so many different ways. Um, it was this huge element in my life that I wasn't sharing with anyone. And I really felt like I needed some kind of visual representation of it. Um, so... I started creating artwork around my own experience first, really just because I was kind of bored when I was recovering from a laparoscopic surgery to uh, look for endometriosis, which I was diagnosed with. And later as a way to really document the specific moments and emotions that I was experiencing as a person with infertility. Um, so like many people, my husband and I, uh, my husband at the time and I, started out just thinking that we were ready to add to our family and have a baby. And so we, we started trying and, um, it was, like I said, in 2010 that we were actually diagnosed after we'd been trying for more than a year. And it was just so frustrating to not be able to share that, but 
not really want to share it. It wasn't so much that I was ashamed about what we were going through. It was more that I just didn't know what to make of it myself. And creating the artwork helped me figure that out, helped me figure out what it meant to be infertile for me and to kind of adapt that identity as part of part of who I was. And later, like Maria said, it was a, a little bit sometimes maybe unhealthy how much we, we took the project on and that identity, but um, it really has been a source of healing for me over the years, uh, particularly as someone who didn't have success for a very, very long time. Um, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and eventually diminished ovarian reserve. My uh, former husband had uh, mild male factor infertility. And we went through the typical, you know, course of treatment with starting with some uh, medications to induce ovulation or to strengthen ovulation and later IUIs and IVF. Um, we were, I actually uh, was not really comfortable with IVF. Not that anyone is, but I really took a lot of time to think about if I really wanted to do it, I spent a lot of months in therapy and eventually decided it was something I wanted to do. But when we did finally do IVF, we went into it knowing that we only wanted to do one retrieval. Um, unfortunately, I also had complications from that retrieval and ended up with um, ovarian torsion and internal bleeding. And that was very traumatic for us both and kind of sealed the deal on us not moving forward with our genetic um material past that initial IVF retrieval. So we transferred two embryos uh, initially, and I did get pregnant with twins, but er miscarried early on. And then we took some time to kind of regroup from that and transferred our final embryo. Um, so it was really at the time when I had that pregnancy that um, I was about a year out from developing the first exhibit of, of Art of Infertility. Um, which was opened in uh, spring of 2014 and um, was actually feeling a little bit resentful about having to put this exhibit together while pregnant, but unfortunately lost the pregnancy and that's gonna work out anyway. But um, right around the time the exhibit opened, I met Maria. We were in Washington, DC for Resolve, the National Infertility Association's uh, Advocacy Day. And as Maria said earlier, we were both um, living in Michigan at the time and spent our day together um, in different legislative offices and really connected over the fact that we were both using creative processes to um, explore our infertility and what that meant for us. So I was creating visual artwork and Maria was creating um, you know, more creative writing pieces, uh, narrative nonfiction pieces. So um, we started meeting on a pretty regular basis and formed Art of Infertility as much as it is today, although with the shift to COVID and the book, it's been a, a little less activity with in-person programming, but we've started to add that back to our, our course of action. And um, it wasn't long after that that we met Robin through an event that we put together at a fertility clinic that we both had a connection to and she joined on um, as someone who was sharing her writing um, through books that she had published that I'll let her share about and um, really joined us to put together uh, writing programming that we could offer to people to help them through their experiences.
Amazing. Thank you so much. I, I feel like you guys have been pushing Robin to be last for some reason. So there must, there must be some reason for this. So I actually want to flip back to Maria and Maria tell a little bit. I know you talked about the introduction to the book, but do you mind telling a little bit about your story to, I, I don't know. I'm like, normally I'm like, I have a spoiler or no, but I just, for some reason I get this feeling that I need to have Robin be the key at the last part here. So Maria, we're going to go to you next. <laughs> Robin, you guys can't see us. Obviously people out there can't see us, but Robin's shaking her head. No, but I'm like, I'm, I'm still, I get this feeling. So. <laughs> well, honestly, it's, I mean, Elizabeth and I have, when we get asked about art of infertility, we have like an order that we go about it. So it's kind of like Elizabeth cues me up for this for once we met. But um, yeah, so Elizabeth and I met in uh, 2013 or 2014. It always, honestly, it's a little um, fuzzy for me with timing. Um, but my infertility story uh, starts when I was young, when I was um, basically, I got married to my high school sweetheart, uh, Kevin, who at the same time, we were, we were 23 when we got married, and we both came from very large Catholic families. I mean, I was the oldest of six. My mother got pregnant when she was 18. My Kevin, my husband, knew was there like when my brother was born, for instance. Um, so the running joke in our family was always like, we would, we we would probably get pregnant before we were married. I mean, that was honestly um, what lots of conversations um, were had about us and our families. And so we got married, and the intention was really for us to start a family right away. And you know, you try and try, and a year goes by, and it's nothing's happening. And you're 24 years old, and you're living, we're both from the state of Wisconsin, but we moved to Michigan for his job. And you're living in a new city all by yourself and trying to figure out why you aren't getting pregnant. And you're so young. And we were living at that time um, in West Michigan, which is also just a very family-centric area. One of the first questions that we were asked is, do you have kids by your neighbors? Because that's just part of the culture there. Um, so it was a really difficult time for us and really isolating. Um, so we went um, to, to the doctor um, to basically get an assessment of what they thought was going on. And then we were recommended to go to a fertility clinic in West Michigan, um, where we basically went for like an initial consultation. And to be quite honest, we were just like totally overwhelmed. And I, I was also just in disbelief that I was actually infertile. I, I just thought there's no way my mom had a pregnancy when she was 44. My grandmother had a pregnancy when she was 44. Like this is just not actually a thing. So we just are going to push it. And also we were like poor. I mean, we had college debt we were like trying to figure out how we were going to just be married because we were still like only like a year and a half into our marriage so it was totally overwhelming and I just felt like I couldn't put myself into any sort of treatment um for all those reasons so we didn't and instead um I decided that I wanted to go to to grad school actually because I thought well I'm going to go to grad school and at least just get my master's and that will at least, um, you know, get me into doing something beyond just like trying and obsessively getting, trying to get pregnant on my own. Um, so I, I did that. And uh, during that time, I also met Elizabeth. Ironically, Robin was also um, at 
teaching at the same program um, that I was there, even though Robin and I didn't know each other at the time. But I had a lot of um, great mentors in that program where my degree is really in like rhetoric um, and writing studies. And a lot of uh, my mentors were encouraging me to really think about the ways in which um, infertility, people write about infertility, the ways in which discourse about what it means to be female and have an infertile body, the ways in which that's really like pathologizing and um, kind of promotes like deficit ideas, right, about femininity and what it means to be female um, and all those things. And so I was really able to kind of blend my own personal experiences and what I saw happening um, just in the infertility community at that time too with, with my actual graduate work. Um, and during that time too, my husband and I just took time we decided to create a couple's peer-led support group, which also like this was like, you know, 2014, 2015. This was also kind of a unique thing at the moment because um, a lot, at that time, there really were like hardly any couple's peer-led support groups at, at all. But we really were like, we need to work at this um, as because it's impacting our relationship so much. So we needed that space. So we did that, um, met Elizabeth and, you know, I was really intrigued by what Elizabeth was creating with this first exhibit. And I said to her, you know, I think we can probably do something, continue this on if we want to. Um, and she agreed. And we, I kind of turned a lot of what we were doing into my dissertation, actually. Um, so th that was like a big chunk of my time. And it wasn't until I actually graduated with my PhD um, on like rhetorics of infertility that I got my first job and I was like, oh, wow. I had to process a lot of um, just just the emotions of of the past few years of not even being able to think about doing treatment or having any sort of like financial ability to do that. And then to suddenly have a job and suddenly have some financial means to support it. It was like, oh, okay, maybe we can think about this again. Um, and so my husband and I actually decided to do a domestic adoption. So in 2018, we started that process in the state of Wisconsin. Um, and by 2019, it was a pretty quick process. By 2019, we were able to have our daughter that we brought home from the hospital, um, which was really great and a wonderful, wonderful experience that I know not everyone is fortunate enough to have, but for us, it was the right thing. And I really feel like it was the right thing for us because we had spent, honestly, the last like eight years of our lives just working through what we wanted collectively um, and really being okay with adoption being our best path forward. We just felt like that was how we wanted to build our family versus um, any sort of treatment or any other um, family building options. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where we're at today. And now we're raising um, a four and a half year old, uh, which is great and exciting. Um, but still, I still do a lot of advocacy work and do a lot of writing around infertility, um, which is why this book was so important too. It's, it's a book for the community, but it's also a book that's really important for academics to really understand um, and, and really to amplify the voices of those who are going through infertility. So much of like academia is about people talking about the people that they're studying. And instead what's so great about this book is this book is actually just the voices of the people going through it um, and not necessarily having to make a theoretical argument about why it's important, but just giving space for everyone's own valid lived experiences. So 
with that, that's my story. I'll let Robin amazing. share. I was say, and, and here we go. Yeah. This is my, yeah. my linchpin, right? Hopefully I well, was right. <laughs> I, I feel like I have, I have nothing else to say. Maria said it all. Um, no, I mean, I, I guess I'm, it, ha- it has been a while since the, I mean, not a couple weeks, right? Since the three of us engaged in one of these interviews and I'm, I'm feeling very, <laughs> I guess, distant from my own story at this point and also just old to be frank. Um, so I, I, I came to infertility and, and this project, I think very, um, from a very different space than um, Maria and Elizabeth, but I think our collaboration has been, um, other than my kids, I mean, the most meaningful thing, obviously, that has come from um, my infertility experience. So I'll, I'm going to back up like more than 20 years, actually. Um, so I decided uh, my last year in, in graduate school, I was pursuing a PhD and an MFA at Indiana. Um, I was about 27 that I was going to become a, a single parent. Um, and this was, I guess it was 20... 21. I mean, so a, a long time ago, and I didn't know exactly how I was going to, uh, to go about that. And this is a, a, a process um, that my, my first book, it's a, a memoir called Texas Girl, deals with. But I'd made that decision and was sort of just launching um, forward with, uh, with that plan, right, just to become a, a, a single mother and what that meant for me at the time. And I didn't, it wasn't particularly angsty uh, at that point, um, but I found myself very quickly at, um, at a fertility clinic just to pursue um, donor insemination and it didn't work, right? Um, and it was months of, of not working. Uh, and maybe I would have gotten pregnant very quickly if I'd been having sex, who knows? Like those are unanswered, right? And unanswerable questions. Um, but the, the whole process, ultimately of conceiving um, my, my first child who is now almost 20 now, um, you know, took over a year. Um, I was uh, about 30 seconds away from starting uh, an IVF cycle when I found out I was pregnant with that child. I'd had um, miscarriages at that point. So it was, it was a complicated way in, um, but also comparatively easy to the, the process of conceiving my second child, who is now um, now 12, right? So there's a, a large age gap between them, as I like to say, thanks to um, infertility. So my, my story is, is one of, I guess, a shift from what we've talked about in, in the book and our collaboration as a kind of social infertility, right? Just lacking access to sperm in my case, although in, you know, in someone else's, it could be egg or uterus or, um, or whatever, but just not having the parts to, um, to make a child um, in the comfort of one's own home. Um, and my, uh, my now 12 year old uh, was conceived through donor egg and donor sperm. So it was a much more complicated um, process. So I, I like to say I've, I've done it all with the exception of um, gestational surrogacy. Like that's the, really the only, the only part of infertility uh, treatment I haven't experienced, but it's, um, it's, it's far removed chronologically, right? Not necessarily emotionally. Um, and as uh, Maria and Elizabeth had already said, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer, so I was processing my experience uh, very early on through both poetry and um, kind of personal 
nonfiction and had published, um, I think it was just the, the memoir, Texas Girl, and was in touch with um, my fertility specialist who was also Elizabeth's and, um, you know, just a, it was really a, a chance meeting and just has become now an almost decades long collaboration. Um, so I, I did a reading at the clinic and did a writing workshop and that sort of become the foundation for a series of writing and art workshops that the three of us have collaborated on and riffed on in various contexts over the years. So, you know, some of those workshops are very much targeted toward individuals who are really in the thick of infertility and, and wrestling, right, with their experience. Some of them are for college students who are thinking about reproductive rights and advocacy on a more conceptual level, right, and less so um, with their immediate experience, most of them, if anything, are trying not to get pregnant, right, at, at age 20. Um, but it's something that we're really committed to thinking through, particularly, I'm sure we'll talk about this with the, um, you know, the reversal of, of Roe v. Wade and, and kind of legislative um, and cultural movements that are going on right now. I guess I, I think that's everything I would say by way of introduction. Um, Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, wow, it's hard to like, uh, luckily, uh, again, people don't realize I can see their faces. So at least I can like see who's going to like respond to any of these questions. So um, I, you know, so you talked about you all met together. And I mean, it, it's so hard to come up with a cohesive question about like, process and things like that. But I know you alluded to it being a COVID kind of COVID, your, your COVID baby, shall we say, right? That um, what, I mean, it probably had to have been in your consciousness before that to put a collection together. What, what truly made you all make the, that jump to realize that you could make a cohesive collection? Because it's a very unique and diverse collection of, of things in this book. I'd say for those, I, I think it's out now, but y'all sent me very kindly a screener copy in advance. So I got to see, I got to look at it. And I mean, it's really an amazingly diverse collection of things. So what made you think to bring all of these very unique, cause it's visual, it's writing, it's all kinds of every different art you can think of together. Yeah. I, I guess I'll, I'll talk for a minute. Um, so it really was, I mean, you're right, it, it, a kind of pre, pre-COVID um, conception, uh, to use a bad pun, I mean, maybe, maybe 2018, maybe 2019. I think 2018, we'd, have to, we'd really have to go back and, and do that archaeology that we started just soliciting information, uh, potential, right, uh, contribution. So the, the visual art, um, comes from a, a kind of core, right, of the a visual art collection that Elizabeth and Maria amassed through the Art of Infertility organization. What we had very little of um, was written work. There were a couple poems. Um, and so the three of us really had significant conversations about just the, the way that a multimodal or multimedia approach would allow us to do all the kinds of intellectual and aesthetic work that needed to be done, right? You have a very different response to seeing visual art as opposed to working through like a 20 page written narrative, right? Um, they work on readers on very different ways um, and they tell stories in very different ways that, um, that talk to each other. 
Um, but it, it really was um, the COVID moment that we're like, okay, we need to get this done and actually submit it to, you know, prospective publishers. Um, and so part of what uh, the final book project, right, became was also a collaboration, obviously, with, um, you know, acquisitions editor at the at Wayne State, which eventually picked up the, the, the project. So that uh, pushed us to reframe and, and rethink and also just recommit to certain practices like that. It was very um, critical for us to be able to think about a plurality of infertility experiences, right? Not just infertility is something that white women right experience and all of us right in this this virtual space are of course white um, white women um, but that was a significant form of diversity that we wanted to think through and also obviously incorporating work by um, by single parents by choice and in some iteration of this we actually had a single father by choice and their work was cut for complicated reasons um, but we were very much committed, right, to, to thinking about the plurality of the experience. And that's something that is obviously reflected in what became our, our title. So I'll, I'll let Maria and Elizabeth jump in. I, I have to say, I love that. I mean, and I think I can only speak to it from the art of infertility side of things, having been to, um, I think, at least two of y'all's exhibits that um, how it brings people together in unexpected ways. Um, so I was standing at the, and I know exactly where I was, it was at the Resolve um, Argument Fertility Exhibit in 2018. I had just met Maria. So mm -hmm. Y'all were making buttons. I even still have my button, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was standing, I was standing there and um, the, the man standing next to me said, that's my photo. Mm. And we struck up a conversation and we have been friends since uh -huh. that time. So I, Ryan Ferrante had submitted his photo. Mm -hmm. He's actually been on our podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the start of an amazing conversation for us. It, it was a really big opening for conversations. Have, have you all seen that, that effect in other ways? I mean, obviously that's my own personal story, but I'd love to hear if you've seen that in other ways too. Yeah. So this is Elizabeth. I think that, um, you know, honestly, that's what, made us keep keep doing this from the beginning right so the first exhibit was really put together as a way that i wanted to raise awareness in my community and i certainly did that but what i was really struck by was the way that people who came to the exhibit uh, whether they participated as an artist in the exhibit or um, not were really using the artwork as a way to have these conversations with their friends and family um, it can be really hard to have a conversation, you know, over a cup of coffee or, um, you know, across the dinner table or, or when you're with friends and family, but the artwork was something tangible and something that people could uh, start to have a conversation around. Uh, we've always explain, um, we've always put the, um, sorry, can you hear this? this digging that's happening on my end. I apologize. A little bit. That's all right. Um, I'm going to try to get rid of that really quickly. Um, I can say something too, as yeah. you're doing that, but mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, so yeah. So as Elizabeth was saying, like, we've definitely, I will say this every time we've done like an in-person exhibit, there's always been someone who 
often doesn't know about the exhibit, but ends up walking in. And for whatever reason, they've just gone through a miscarriage or their friend was just recently um, diagnosed with infertility. I mean, there's always been someone who uh, who has needed to find the exhibit at a moment um, when it's when it's just very raw, which I don't know what to, there's no way to really explain that, but that's, that's something. And I will say also just like, just personally. um, So with the book, we've been doing a series of different book launches and book readings and things like that. And what I've also found interesting is um, for some book readings where I've had friends and family come, um, I've I've read, I have a piece called the house um, and then the house part two. And I, and I read both of those at a recent event. And then I later on, we connected with some friends who were there um, and they, she had a wonderful conversation with me saying, you know, it was so illuminating to hear you talk and share that piece because I remember when we went to your house in Michigan and I remember having conversations with her husband about how you and Kevin just seemed really like in a really difficult place and we couldn't exactly pinpoint what's going on and at this time they knew we were going through infertility and everything but she said it wasn't until i heard you read from the book that it really helped us have conversations to see a little bit better all the pain that you were going through that we thought we understood but really we couldn't actually understand at all because we weren't going through that so that was also just really fascinating for me to hear um like you know 10 years later how this work is helping my friends and family understand things that I was going through 10 years ago. And it'd be great, like, if they could have just understood it better then. But that's okay. That's besides the point. It's like, that's doing something. And if that's going to help improve, I think, all the relationships that get fractured in weird ways because of infertility, um, then that's one great outcome of the book, I would say. Such an important one. Um, and I, I noted in the description that, it over 60% of people are shown by surveys not to share that they're going through infertility with friends and family. So I could see just how a piece of art or buying the book and having it on your table could be that opener to be able to open up and talk to someone when it's hard to say like, Hey, I'm going through this, but to be able to kind of open the conversation in other ways. You alluded, Robin, earlier to talking about kind of Roe v. Wade and the impact there. I'd love to hear your your thoughts and especially how this project has been shaped or changed by that. Yeah. I guess it's Casey, not Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was long. Yeah. Casey, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like uh, <laughs> Maria generally uh, answers our legislation questions, but I mean, oh, I was I, saying, I, we, I, can, I, we can have Maria answer. I, that's okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll have a, I'll have a brief answer and then uh, Maria can jump in. I mean, yeah, the, the, the timing, what, so we had, um, we were, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the exact history, but I, I want to say it was, uh early like spring 2022 that this book was finally accepted at wayne state am i remembering this correctly time is is swirly um and as we were working yeah as we were working on putting together what became right the final manuscript um you know all all that was (laughs) 
was going down with um, the the um, sc the SCOTUS dis decision, which I mean was just horrifying. Um, and we ended up as a result, um, just changing a, a few sentences. I mean, maybe there's an additional paragraph in the introduction that situates the project in relationship with that legislation, because it, it, it becomes imperative to think about as a context. And I think all of us in this virtual space know this, right? That infertility is not a separate thing from conversations about reproductive choice and reproductive health and reproductive justice, um, but so often in kind of common conceptualizations, right? They're, they're kept in distinct spaces, um, which is extraordinarily problematic in, a, you know, uh, in, in all kinds of, of ways. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I can think even an event that we did probably 2022 before the, the book came out, you know, there were folks in the audience who were kind of dealing with, um, with miscarriages and things. And like, why would I want to think about, right, the possibility of, of abortion? Um, and it seems really, uh, I mean, short-sighted, right? They're, they're two sides of the same coin. You have, you have a miscarriage, you need what is abortion treatment ultimately, right? I mean, I think about my own history, um, you know, I had a very protracted miscarriage experience in the early 2000s in Texas, right, of all places. I would not have been able to receive medical care for a non-viable pregnancy that was not going to end on its own, right, in that kind of current moment. Um, and I think about that, um, I think about that quite a bit. Um, just how lucky I was. Um, yeah, I guess, Maria, do you want to jump in and be more of a I, I mean, stuff? I would just echo with Robin, what Robin's saying is um, that, that connecting access to just reproductive care in general mm -hmm. is is essential, right, to this book. Um, and I was even watching recently last week a PBS NewsHour interview with, um, if you're following what's happening in Texas, um, the Center for Reproductive Rights is sponsoring um, a lawsuit against the state in order to provide access to abortion services. And one of the women uh, that actually was interviewed, she had her own fertility story. She had undergone multiple IVFs and um, without success and then got pregnant um, suddenly. And then uh, when they had the ultrasound, knew that it wasn't going to be a viable pregnancy. And she was living in Texas and needed to find um, an abortion service and, and tried to go to New Mexico and couldn't go and then tried to go to Colorado and eventually got into Colorado. But um, the, she really talked about the real right threat to her life um, because she couldn't get access to care. And I thought it was so... Um, brave of her to talk about it explicitly through an IVF connection because it is it's like what Robin said like they are the other side of the coin um, and when you don't have access to care and you have um, reproductive health issues that can really impact right how you make decisions about what type of family building options you may you may go about it and I think what we're also careful about and especially myself just through my own adoption story too is not also equating the fact right that this then just means that there's just more babies to adopt, right? And we know that that's a problematic 
narrative as well. Um, and that, again, birth mothers should have access to whatever type of reproductive treatment care that, that they would like. Um, and that's really, I think, just a fundamental goal and belief that we've had in the book, but also that's just been something that the art of infertility is also just promoted as well. So tell me your favorite piece, if anybody is willing to jump and tell. I mean, I, I will say, like, I found that all of it that I taught, I mean, some of it resonated much more. I, I can admit I was sitting on an airplane crying at one point reading through you guys' book. So, I mean, that, so I, I want to hear what each of your favorite, if you're willing, I say sometimes it may be too hard to choose, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to hear, especially if people are, you know, trying to, and, and why, because that might help people, you know, get a taste of what might bring them there. And I can say that it was like anything for me, any of the written word stuff was very, very, very powerful to me personally. Um, it is so hard to choose, right? How do you choose? They all have, they're all um, important and unique and for their own, in their own way. Um but I will just talk briefly about our, our, what ended up as our cover, our cover, our cover piece. Um, yeah. We, you know, as people who are putting together a book, you're working with a publisher and there are a lot of choices and it, uh, we do have a lot of input along the way, but that was something that wasn't necessarily going to be our final decision because that's just you know the way it works so we trust our publisher you know completely but I was really pleased when the piece that that ended up on the cover was there um it's a piece by um Jesse oh god why am I totally blank on her uh Dietz sorry it's a piece by Jamie Dietz Bieski uh, called Lady in Waiting, and um, it it's particularly important to me because it's a piece that we've had with us from the beginning. Uh, that piece was in our first exhibit in Jackson, Michigan, back in 2014, and it's it's been with us throughout the life of the organization and into the book, and now um, as our cover piece. Um, it's funny though, because I didn't really have a chance to hear the full story behind the piece until recently. Robin and I were um, doing an event with Jesse at a bookstore in Lansing, Michigan, and Jesse was there with us sharing about her piece. And she really gave more insight to why she created the piece with that, with the material she did. You know, there, there's uh, tubes that per protrude from a plain white canvas and she talked about why she chose white and um, that she very specifically chose toilet paper rolls as the tubes uh, because um, you know going to the bathroom while dealing with infertility especially after having experienced a miscarriage can be so triggering um, so it was really special to me to hear that and that's something that um, you know, all of these pieces offer is just that inside look at, you know, what was the kind of moment that the person was experiencing while creating this? Why did they choose the materials they did? Uh, why is it significant? And um, that, you know, 
it was really important to me that we continue to explain the whole narrative or include a whole narrative. We at one point kind of debated what that would look like exactly in book form. Um, but, you know, it's impossible to choose, choose one piece. Um, there are so many different uh, kinds of media. We have sculpture, we have fiber pieces, we have glass pieces, we have photography. So really having an opportunity to package those together in this book and provide a wide variety of, you know, not only media, but experiences through those, those pieces um, has been really essential to me. And like you said earlier, just showing people they're not alone and also, you know, having an opportunity to use this book and these pieces to share with healthcare providers who, you know, don't often have a chance to hear the lived experiences of their patients just due to time, you know, they're there to, to order medication and, and um, procedures and don't necessarily get that inside look. Uh, so we're hopeful that the book will be used in that way as well. I love the idea of it being essentially a not, I wouldn't say coffee table book, but like for medical offices, like <laughs> I think that seems like almost like it should be mandatory, quite honestly. What's the best way people can find the book and order it? Uh, well, it, it is available. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, Amazon. Um, it's available through our um, publisher's website. So that's Wayne State University Press. Um, website, you can get it on bookshoprate.org, um, your local independent bookstore. And then, yeah, it is, it is available on Amazon. Um, Do you guys have any art installations coming up where people could see art in person? We just finished, um, I was just in Portland last week, um, for this, wonderful organization, Roaring Adventures, that uh, they had a gala that raises money for um, nurses and first responders and veterans um, to support their family building journeys. And they had wanted us to come out for a while um, before COVID as well, and it never worked out. And then um, this time it, it did. So we just did like a, a um, pop-up type of exhibit for, for that gala which was great um and then we're gonna be um maybe showing just a few small pieces but it really won't be open to the public we'll be back at michigan state doing some programming um in february we're also able to go to um the association of AWP, uh, a conference, Robin can explain what that is, um, in Kansas City, which is a great writer's conference, and we'll be talking about the book, but um, nothing nothing really yet to date, um, but if people, again, want us to come out, they can just email, um, and we can figure things out that way. Yeah, I would just add that, you know, that's the, the way that almost every single exhibit we've ever done has has happened is someone is interested in bringing the artwork to their community and they reach out to us and we work with them to really put that together. So uh, we're always happy to hear from people who are interested in sharing uh, the experience of infertility through this kind of uh, media and also offering um, art and writing workshops. Uh, we've done film screenings, plays, and a lot of healthcare provider um, and other 
uh, kind of professional education, bringing patient stories into the workplace. Uh, the, I think the, the other thing I would add, and this, this goes toward maybe one of the first questions just about the, the origin of the project and the desire for a book is that it is portable, right? In a way that um, uh, I, I think about one of the, the first times that I think the first time that the three of us were together at a conference and Elizabeth had these giant blue suitcases full of art, right? That's difficult to do, right? To, to schlep um, art across the country or, or internationally, but the, what the book is able to do um, is, is provide a, a much larger sampling, right, of the, the work um, in, the, in the collection and, and just make it um, portable and accessible to a range of individuals who might not be able, right, to make it to an in-person um, gallery uh, exhibition. But I think we're also very excited um, to get back in, in physical spaces because there, there's, um, there's an issue of scale and scope, right? As, as you know, if you've seen the exhibit, like I saw for the first time um, the, the work by um, Eva Nye, who has these like 10 foot giant canvases, like, and they're a couple inches, right, in height in our book, like there's, there's no, right, right. There's such a huge disconnect between those two things. And it's incredibly powerful to see in person. So. Yeah. And I would, I would just add too, I mean, the portability of the book is meant to enact some of the decisions we make with the exhibit as well. So we haven't really talked a lot about the, the, like the structure and contents of the book, but um, so like there is writing and art and different modalities of art as well but there's three different sections um kind of and and different brief little introductions to each of the sections so they're not titled either intentionally to kind of provide individuals who are to pick up the book um and read a section and then put it down and then maybe pick up a different section basically to find themselves um whether they're going through infertility at that moment um find maybe a moment where that resonates with that experience and story or for someone who isn't like this is also a book for people who aren't going through infertility but maybe have a friend right or maybe they're like a nursing student or maybe um they're a family member right to like pick up a moment um and just kind of sit with whatever that story is resonating um robin can also talk a little bit about like there's a really different type of a like table of context in the back, which is also meant to kind of guide various different readers um, with how they might want to engage with the book. I don't know, Robin, if you want to say a few things about that. Please do. I think you already said it, but <laughs> basically instead of a, a kind of chronologically, right, or alphabetically organized table of contents, um, we have one that's more I forget what we finally called it in the book, but it's it's more thematic, right? Or diagnostic in certain kinds of ways. So the folks who are dealing with um, recurrent pregnancy loss, right? And want to be clued into what are the narratives and what are the visual arts that engage that particular, right? Experience, they can find them on, on these pages or um, various kinds of identity issues, right? There's a section on um, race and racism um, related to infertility. There's, uh, you know, kind of physical um, and like surgical procedures, like there's PCOS and endometriosis and fibroids and all kinds of things. So, so read because um, 
uh, we've all done this, but I think reading the book from cover to cover is probably an overwhelming experience to, um, to readers who are really more immediately, right, and psychologically connected to infertility, but to be able to dip in and out and find the particular pieces of visual art and narratives that really resonate at a particular moment, I think is, was really important to us in terms of, of finding another way um, to organize our material. But what also became really clear is that there are so many different ways of categorizing most of the pieces that we have. Yeah, I was gonna say there's I I know that just you know there's like right like you can't touch like it's not one size fits all and you don't fit in one box on anything related to infertility no. unfortunately nobody does. Um, as we unfortunately we're hitting time on kind of like as we wrap up, are there any final thoughts um, that you'd love to impart to our our listeners about your book i mean besides of course the obvious like please go out and find your book because <laughs> it's such an amazing thing to I, I, again i really everybody who listens long enough knows i'm basically cold and dead inside and i cried at, at least several of the things i read so um definitely has a huge impact so i'd love to hear though y'all's like final thoughts i was just going to add that we did include some art and writing prompts in the book as well uh, we really wanted people to have an opportunity to start if they haven't already, or maybe they have already explored art and writing as a way to process, uh, just have the opportunity. And what I really felt like helped me through grieving was just setting aside that time and space to create artwork. And it gave me kind of permission to process what I was going through. So we're hopeful that people will use the book um, in that way as well. And they're all super easy things to do in terms of you know, using materials that you most likely already have in your home. Um, doesn't require any special equipment or anything you have to buy necessarily. Um, so I would encourage people to, to check out the book if that's something they're interested in exploring. Yeah, I, I would add two things. One that we haven't, haven't talked about too, um, I mean, we, we touched on the diversity of the experiences, right? Um, but we were also really careful in that third section not to have a singular kind of success narratives. Your, your audience can't see my scare quotes there. Yeah. Um, because not every infertility story ends with a baby, right? As, as, right. as we all know. Um, yep. And even for those individuals who are fortunate enough, right, to complete their families in whatever way that they they can ultimately it doesn't mean the emotional experience goes away either right it's very much um kind of cyclical i think for for many people and it, it comes up in various ways and so um i think that's um i don't know just a really critical contribution that the project makes that there's not one one way of um kind of understanding and then there was something else but now i'm not remembering what the, the second thing was <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I would add, like, yes, 100%, um, that was a crucial and intentional decision we had about um, not perpetuating this idea of always having success, or that just, right, success, you redefine it, um, you have to all the time, right, you're not going to do IVF, and then you end up doing two or three different rounds of IVF, you know, and what that looks like, but um, in terms of, like, 
what I have really taken away the last few months since the book has been published um, has been just the opportunity to hear people who have contributed to the book read their stories and just share a little bit about it. That's also been really impactful. I know Elizabeth and Robin were saying like they heard Jesse talk, who is the you know artist of the of the cover art, and it it spoke differently again to to both of them right about the intentions behind that piece. It's also been like really helpful um, and interesting just to hear some of the creative writers read their work and talk a little bit about it. And also just to hear them read their words. It's really impactful. Um, so I would just extend an invitation, like people, of course, buy the book, but also if you run a support group or other sorts of um, like clinic things, um, you know, or you do an or you're running an organization like we're happy to figure out some sort of reading to it could be virtual it could be in person but i think that has it it it's um it hits differently than just buying the book and reading it um it can also create a different sense of community and connection um so feel free you know buy the book of course but also you know we're happy to facilitate other types of virtual programming um in ways that might be more accessible than an in-person exhibit too Amazing. And Robin, you said you remembered what you, yeah, I don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> no. And um, I mean, Mar Maria hit on it in a, in a certain way, which is just the way that the book has um, facilitated and opened up community, right. In, in really tangible ways. So, you know, as our contributors were receiving their copies and reading for the first time, you know, everybody else's contributions. It was email after email after email about how powerful, right, it, it was. Um, yeah, and uh, it was really gratifying just to see that. I mean, it's something that the three of us, I think, felt and intuited in putting together the project, but to hear that echoed back and then to engage with with audiences, right, in various spaces, it just continues to open out. And that's very much what we, um, you know, what we hoped would happen. Well, I have to say, again, from my perspective, it is amazing. And I really do encourage people to go look for it. And, and I, again, I've been to a couple of their exhibits in person. They are amazing also, but this is nice to have a, and I'm not going to say pocket size because it's not quite pocket size, but you know, exactly. like a, a portable version of, of this amazing art gallery to bring around with so many, many contributions. Thank you all for coming and talking to us. And um, we, we very much appreciate you being in this sphere and helping so many people process and not feel alone in this. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much to Elizabeth, Maria, and Robin. And I want to like fun fact for everybody, and I think I may have mentioned it in there, is that we generally can't see our guests when we're podcasting. And obviously you can't see us when you're listening, but it was really fun because we turned on the video for this one to be able to like make eye contact with our guests and see them and see their facial expressions. So just kind of give you a little behind the scenes glimpse of what was fun about that. I mean, it was, but I had to not wear pajamas and not be weird on camera you know there's what? there's some advantages to not having your camera on Fine. maybe it's just, maybe it's just me okay but no it was amazing to get to see them and um 
so amazing all their work they're doing yeah um also amazing you guys listening to our podcast thank you to our listeners we appreciate you and we appreciate those on our team that are helping us produce this and get it out there so especially to tyler and melissa amanda so incredible um we love when you are willing to rate us we we'll even take negative feedback but positive we you know we, we take we it especially all. love the positive but you can yeah. rate it on um itunes probably other forums too but i know you can put the stars in there uh you can also put comments you know some responses there um you can call us so you can uh leave a message at 303-997-1903 okay go ahead grab a pen i'll go again ready you have the pen 303-997-1903 another great way to reach us and we're always um excited to hear feedback to hear who you want to hear from next um and your various thoughts on on our podcast so thank you 